Welcome to the New Abbey Podcast. We are a Jesus community telling the biggest story of God in Los Angeles. We're excited that you're joining the conversation with us today. Enjoy. And so I have a light question for you all to start off with today. What's something you used to believe that you now see as harmful? Enjoy. I love that you've never seen me so aggressive about giving besides turkeys, so it's good. I've had this like big idea, this thesis, this like center of gravity that I've been thinking about for a long time, and I generally tend to think in questions, asking questions about the bigger story of God and a bigger reality of what it means to be human. It's kind of how I process and see the world and the frameworks that I have, and I've been asking this bigger question of, what if God is more interested in our way of life than our beliefs? Let me say it again. What if God is more interested in our way of life than our beliefs? And so to talk about that, we're going to talk about some things. We're going to talk about Greta Thornburg. And if we can do that, oh, Greta Thornburg fans, come on, get it up, yeah. I will always take more clapping. Then we're going to talk about Jewish, Jewish, Jewish. And if we can do that, then we're going to talk about what it means to be embodied. And if we can talk about what it means to be embodied, then everybody's favorite Hebrew word on this Sunday morning, halakha. And if we can talk about that, then Bobby B, Rob Bell. If we can talk about Rob Bell, then we're going to talk about show me and don't tell me. And if we can do that, then we're going to talk about a remodel. And if we can do that, then we're going to pick a building block. And I have no idea why that passage is up there. So here we go. I think Greta Thornburg pictured here is inspiring to so many different human beings because she is moving the world from a set of ideals and beliefs to a way of practice. She is asking people to march, to vote with their feet, to get involved. What she's trying to say is our ideals and our beliefs are not working. Our planet is literally dying in front of us. And we live in an entire global system right now where many people on all kinds of different fronts, right? Race, sexuality, economics, money, you name the thing, we're asking similar questions. Theology, spirituality, the church. What we're saying to the world is our ideals and our beliefs are not working. And because they are not working, we need to find a new way of living or believing into this world. They might be working for some, but there's 8 billion people on planet Earth, and the hope would be that it works for all. And there's a lot of work that we need to do to make our ideals and our beliefs work for who we are as human beings. And so Greta Thornburg is just fascinating in, in the way that she goes about it. I love that she's like sassy and irreverent and just post things. I think that we need that in our world right now. We're looking for people who are just willing to find a voice, who are willing to, to shout some things out because there's a lot of things that, that needed to be shouted out. And I find a parallel between what she's doing and talking about climate change with what's happening in the world of the church, is that Greta, if you've seen some of her, her videos lately, she posts all these videos about the United Nations and the global summits, and she does this thing like blah, 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 blah. Here's what they're telling us again. Blah, 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 blah. Oh, let me repeat what they've been telling us. Blah, 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 blah. How many different accords do we need to sign? How many politicians do we need to get together? How many powerful people need to get into a room so that nothing will continue to change? And she's like, that, that just won't work for us anymore. What happens when we don't have an Amazon anymore? 
What happens when the heat continues to grow up? What happens when we continue to experience fires on the West Coast? I think in the church, we're saying the same thing. What happens when these beliefs don't work for women? What happens when these beliefs don't work for the LGBTQ community? What happens when these beliefs don't work for people of color? What happens when these beliefs aren't working for white men? What happens when these beliefs aren't actually working for any of us, that they're repressing us and oppressing us in ways that's damaging to who we are? And so the point is not just challenging it for the sake of challenging it. What I love about Jesus, and even as we've been in the Sermon on the Mount, is Jesus says things of, you've heard that it was said, but I say unto you. Jesus is doing the deconstruction, reconstruction process. Jesus is saying, here's a way of life and some ideals and some beliefs that have been going on, but I want to bring you into a new reality that will actually bring wholeness and healing and health and beauty, how Jesus calls it, kingdom into this world. So we gotta change some things up in order for this to work for everybody. And the Jewish way of belief was always helpful for this. One of the things that's happened particularly in in white evangelicalism is that white evangelicalism is one of the most powerful groups, movements, denomination, whatever you wanna put it in, uh, forms of Christianity in the last 2,000 years. And the reason for that is not numbers, actually. If you want to talk about evangelicalism as a whole, it makes up less than 10% of Christians that live on planet Earth today. It's a very small minority of who Christians are. If you live in the United States, it's everything. But that group of people funds the vast majority of the church around the world. Because it funds the vast majority of the church around the world because of the economic uh, success that the United States has, that means we get to propagate certain ideologies around the world. And I don't think people are evil because of that. I don't think they're malicious because of that. I think what happens over time is that people just become blind. And we become blind because we're not experiencing it. Just like global warming, when you are powerful, you don't tend to experience the suffering that's happening in the world. So when powerful politicians on private jets go to places and they're having global warming summits, those people might not be experiencing the hands-on suffering or trauma that global warming is creating in this world. When powerful people who have church conferences get in a room, sometimes they're not experiencing the trauma that's taking place in a room of the actual people or members of the people that are part of their community. And so what's happening in the world is I'm not up here to make judgments. I'm not here to wage war against evangelicalism. What I am here to say is maybe we need better eyes to see and ears to hear what God's trying to do. Maybe it's God, I fully believe that it's God that's leading a reformation right now around the world saying this version of theological belief is oppressing and repressing too many people. And because of that, it's damaging and it's harmful. And I've said it before, 2.7 million people are leaving the church in the United States every single year after year after year after year. And part of the reason for that is more powerful that you get, the more the way that you live becomes ideological, cognitive, and beliefs up here. And the most powerful places of the church have always been embodiment. Why is the Jesus story so powerful? Because God became embodied. Why do we love Christmas? Because Mary held in her belly God being birthed into this world in a fresh way. There's something about God becoming one of us as a story that we connect to. We often want a bigger story of God. We want concepts and Milky Way galaxies and Hubble telescopes and all that kind of stuff and the world's expanding and there's large constructs and systems that we need to take down and you name it. But how we 
operate as human beings as we operate embodied. There's a reason that the people that we look to over history are the moms and the grandmas and the tias and the prophets and the poets, right? Because these people lived an embodied experience and those are the words and the experiences that get passed on over hundreds and hundreds of years. And so again, I'm not here on a Sunday morning just to judge white evangelicalism, right? And by white, I just mean whiteness is a construct that's destructive, and by evangelicalism, I mean a form of theology that's rooted in some things, uh, which is another theological conversation for another morning, but it moves us away from actual embodiment. Whereas in Judaism, the mother of our faith, Judaism, 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 Jewish, 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 is all about practical embodiment. The stories of Jesus are really rooted in physicality. Jesus is talking about crops and farming and bread and wine and fish and things that you can touch and hold on to. Jesus is not sitting in rooms with people and saying, now can you articulate for me the construct of the Trinity? Can you please tell me more verses from the Bible? No, Jesus gets hands-on, he gets embodied, he heals people. All the people that you're not supposed to touch, he lays hands on. All the people that you're not supposed to be next to, his body moves to. Jesus gets next to and up close to suffering in this world. That's good theology. That's how God works. And Jesus always has something to say for the people who are far removed from that. And those people who are often far removed from the suffering of the world, they often have the most to say because they've been given the platform to say it but sometimes they're just blind to see because they do not experience it. Again, they're not evil, they're not malicious, they're not experiencing it. And so now we live in a world of social media and a lot of other things where we're trying to put it in front of people's faces. Do you see it now? Do you see what we've been talking about for thousands of years? This is how real people are living and what they're really experiencing. That's a powerful thing. And so Judaism wants to bring us back into a practice. And the reason I say that is because Jesus was Jewish. Jesus was not an American evangelical. He just wasn't. He wouldn't have thought that way. He wouldn't have had a rifle. He was a pacifist, right? Jesus would have just done a lot of things differently than us. And Jesus was incredibly Jewish in the way that he thought, in the way that he breathed, in the way that he encountered the world. Look at Deuteronomy 5, which is the Shema, which is like the key verse for the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible that Jews would have looked to. It says this, Hear, O Israel. Again, we gotta hear some things because maybe we've been deaf. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts, right? It's all so physical, like impress them on there. Impress them on your children. How do you like that image at Disneyland, right? These are God's words. Talk about them when you sit at home, right? It's so practical, you're just moving your body. What are you doing? You're just sitting there and you're just talking about this way of God. It's not just ideas that are up there. Oh, this is what we do as a family. This is how we experience gratitude. Every night when we go to bed, my children talk about things that they're grateful for. And we sit around, we just thank God. God, thank you for this. Thank you for this. I'm trying to teach my children something. When they're laying in bed at night, right? When they're laying in bed and they're just thinking about their day, they're thinking about what has God done today? I'm trying to give them a different version of who God is and what it means to follow. Oh, that was a close one. Follow Jesus. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your house and on your gates. It's just everywhere. It's an embodied experience of how you deal with God. Here's the thing about deconstruction that's happening in this room. Most of you are not deconstructing God. You're, you're deconstructing the ideals and the beliefs about God. And yet you still showed up on a Sunday morning because there's something about you that wants to connect with God. And we need to separate those realities. Yes, say no to those things. 
Those ideals about God that disembodied us, things like the rapture, how we understand heaven and hell, right? Those, that was all disconnecting us from here and now because we were so busy, we were so heavenly minded that we were no earthly good. And that's literally destroyed the world. And Jesus is always the opposite. Bring God, would your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? Bring that good stuff here is what Jesus is all about. Jesus is this embodied being that is inviting us into that, trying to move us away from a set of ideals and beliefs that are destructive for us. And so I wanna look at Jesus's words in Matthew 7, and they go like this. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit. I feel like this is like, like Betty bought some butter, but the butter Betty bought was bitter. So Betty bought some better butter, but the bitter butter made the bitter butter better. Amen? Thank you. So likewise, every tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. And a good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. In 2012, I had the opportunity of developing a friendship and a mentorship with Rob Bell. He had just moved to Laguna. He had left his church, Mars Hill, in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And he really changed my life. I didn't really know who Rob was before I met him. That was one of the things that worked out for me. Everyone else around Rob was like a fanboy. I'm just like, you speak good, you know? And he... <laughs> There was like 20 of us in a room where I met him in Laguna, and it was just a really powerful experience. And then I ended up kind of learning about who he was and what a big deal that he was in the world. And at the time, I was a pastor of like a growing and larger church, and I thought, this is like, this is the person that I want to be. I want to be the person that speaks at a church of 10,000 and be on these circuits and write New York Times best-selling books, and God, it's for your glory. Those things aren't bad, but just, there was an idea of who you were supposed to be. And it was Rob who initially deconstructed that for me because he left it all. At the peak of what he was doing, what he wanted to tell the world is, what if there's a bigger story of God out there? And what I'm fascinated is that Rob wrote the book, Love Wins. And evangelicalism completely turned their back on Rob Bell because of a set of beliefs. And they believed that those beliefs were scary or detrimental. He doesn't believe in hell. Instead of, no, you missed the point of the book. This guy believes in a God who wants to reconcile all things. What a horrible version of God that is. But in 2011, it was edgy. In 2011, this thing pushed, right, our understanding of what God could be. And then we're all at a place of like, what a weird God that would torture people in the internal chamber at the basement. That's odd. That's, that doesn't sound like a thing that I'm interested in. And what we can move past that, but that's not the same thing as participating in a God who wants to reconcile the whole world. And I remember meeting with Rob over some years, and I, I, I told him this one time. I said, Rob, to be honest, when we first started to hang out, I thought you were gonna teach me to be the great man. And you taught me to be a good man. And for that, I am forever grateful. You gave me eyes to see and ears to hear what's true about being a pastor. And what I'm so hurt by is that the evangelical church turned their back on you not because there's stories of scandal from your church. Not because there's stories of the way that you abused your congregation. Not because you cheated on your wife and were doing coke in the back room. It was none of that. 
You just wanted to say something that would take away our power a little bit. You wanted to say something a little bit different than we're saying it. You wanted to tell a bigger story, and we're not about that. And yet there's a myriad of other pastors since then who have abused and hurt, who've cheated, who've lied, who many of you have been damaged by, and we're fine with them. And it's been interesting to me. So we want to crucify a guy who's done good and glorify those who continue to hurt and damage? What is wrong with the system that we cannot see and cannot hear this? And Rob Bell taught me a different way, the ways that he would ask me questions. I never once got a question from him about how big the thing was or this was going on. It was always deeply personal questions about my way of being, who I was as a husband, the type of father that I was becoming, and it changed me. It taught me to ask bigger and better questions. It taught me to be interested in things that are true, things that when we're on our deathbed and we're talking to people about, it's like, oh, that's the stuff that we focused on. You don't sit in a room and you're like, where's your 401k at today? What? We're missing the point. And so we'll measure them and we'll judge them by their good fruit. What I hope for for New Abbey is that we're a bunch of good people. I get trollers every single week who want to attack this community. It's a lot of fun. Like, oh, this is heresy. Or this is that. Or what do you believe about sexual sin? By the way, one of my favorite things to do when I get these emails is I ask a question in return. Well, what do you believe about sexual sin? Frankie knows this. I do it all the time and I screenshot it to them and they never know what to do right? Because they want to get into like a battle of beliefs and theology and whatever, but it's like, no, if you want to participate, then participate. It's easy just to yell at some people and burn the thing down, but tell me what you, where you're really at. Let's go experience that thing together. And what I believe about this place is, and I'll, tell people, I'll say this in emails or on Instagram DMs all the time when people are done ranting at me. I'll always say, I challenge you to come into this space and experience the fruit of Christ. Come on. And if after that you still got problems, I'm down for any conversation you want. You come and look at these people in the eye and tell me that Jesus isn't in this space. You come and look at, yeah, clap for yourself, seriously. Feel free to come into this room and tell me you don't experience love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, stuff. Tell me you don't experience these things. Because I experience it in these people all the time. These people are taking their lives seriously enough to ask some questions and challenge some things because they want to move from ideals and beliefs that don't work for everyone, and they're going to do the incredibly lifelong work of creating practices that can work for everyone. And it's hard, hard work. I don't think that we're somehow like super special. Or this is a cult. You guys have found the magical place. Give 30%, by the way. Um, no. <laughs> what I love that I see out in the world is that God is popping up communities everywhere. God is doing something big in the world, and why I believe why we have a special role is there's a lot of people who are just leaving the thing right now because they think there's no hope to join anything else. And what I believe is, no, we're creating a space for people. It's a, it is a rowboat that they can jump onto, and they can say, ah, I've been tired out there in the ocean. Thank you for rowing for me. Thank you for doing this hard work. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for teaching me that I could pray again. Ah, that's the magic of this room. The verse goes on and says this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and, and in your name drive out demons and your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Strong verse. It's a verse that's saying, there's a lot of people who are saying things in my name. And what I'm saying is they're actually not saying it in my name. Maybe we need more of this verse in this world. Maybe we need to hear more of like, oh, there's a lot of people who are speaking on God's behalf or saying they're speaking on God's behalf, and maybe they're not. 
Maybe that gives us some freedom to operate in the world and say, oh, no, you don't get power over me anymore. You don't get control over me anymore. I know so many people who come into this room and the thing that they want to run back to is the old place because what we so desperately want is we just want our family or the people back there to accept us. And they might not because they're on their own journey. And they are not going to be changed in their journey because you had a well-articulated point on Facebook or Instagram. They are going to be changed in their journey because they experience the fruit of your life. Because they know without a doubt that what resonates within you is good. Without a doubt, what resonates within you is Christ. And I believe that. I believe that that's the work that we're doing with one another. For me, I think about it this way of show me, don't tell me. We live in a world where we tell people a lot of things. And it's, it's easy to get into it. It's easy to get into the comment section. And I want to be a people that show up, show people. We can go give money away, or 59 of you, you know who you are, are going to give turkeys next week. I'm going to keep coming back to that, lest you forget, because I believe that we're going to show people. It's such a small thing in the world. They're not going to write New York Times articles about 59 turkeys given away, but it means something for us. It says, oh, we put in the work. We committed to something, and we did it. There's going to be other things that we commit to, and we're going to go do it. And that's the point of being human. You just keep putting in the work. You just keep taking it one day at a time. You keep living in this moment, offering the very best commitments of what you have now. An hour from now? I don't know. That's an hour from now. That's a lot of work ahead. But right now, in this moment, these are some things that we committed to, and we can be about it. And Jesus goes on, and he says this. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise person who built their house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundations on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish person who built their house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the wind blew and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. And when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. I'm undergoing a house remodel at the moment. We've been remodeling for six months, and uh, it's a privilege and an opportunity to be remodeling a house, and I want to have a lobotomy at the moment because it's stressful, and we're like doing all the finishing touches, and it just requires a lot of time and energy, and in the process of it, just like when you do anything physical, like I ran a marathon last week. Whenever you do something physical, again, more free applause. (laughs) That's not why I did it, but I'm an Enneagram 3, so... I'll take it. It's hard work until you get to see the outcome of something. And this house was this old, beat-up, junky house that we have completely renovated, gutted everything imaginable inside, right? Put all new plumbing, all new electrical, all the new things inside of it. And it's really made me just think about the hard work of the process of it is the hard work of the reconstruction in this room. The deconstruction is we're going to say no to some things over here, We're going to question some things. We're going to doubt. We're going to wonder. And we're going to trust that God's totally okay with that. God's not scared. God's not like, you're doubting today. (gasps) (laughs) What a weird God that would be, right? Ah, they found out that the world wasn't flat. I was trying to keep it. No, that's a weird thing. (laughs) Oh, they found out they were horny. Yeah, woo. You know, you were just human. You're just human. God wasn't surprised. We're surprised. We create weird rules around things. So we're going to deconstruct. But then we have to reconstruct. We have to build some things on a solid rock. And what the last six months has taught me is, sometimes you just gotta be patient. This time around, you don't have anything to rush into. 
Where you're at today, it's good. There's fruit there. There's beauty there. There's love there. But I got to figure out these set of beliefs and what's this mean and what do I say theologically and biblically? What do I do with Philippians? I don't know. That's okay. You'll get there. But today, just putting some tile up, you know? And here's the beautiful thing about a remodel. Eventually, three years from now, you're like, man, this was really fashionable at the time. And later you come back and you're like, that is green carpet, to be honest. It's got to go. Then it's got to go. Because your foundation is on something bigger. And would you trust that in the process? You're going to keep evolving. You're going to keep changing. You're going to keep growing. There's different bricks and, you know, different parts of the house that you're going to put together. But trust that in this process, you're not losing your faith. You're finding a deeper one. You're not deconstructing into nothing. You're reconstructing into something bigger and more beautiful. I love this meme that I saw. I'm going to end with a meme. I started with some. Look at all of these. Worm. That's Kylie's, Riley's Lego project. It takes a second to see it, right? It's brilliant. New Abbey, if that's us, praise God. If you just got one little brick to put down right now, it's enough. Would you hear that? Would you hear that you can withstand the storm even with that because of where your foundation is on? The passage ends with this. They were amazed at Jesus' authority, not yours. Great. There's something bigger than you that can hold your little worm. That did not come off right. Not. How's that for a sound bite? And so my challenge, and I'm a co- my challenge to our community is this this week. What would it look like for a community of people that are figuring a bunch of things out? And we're in a spectrum of places. What would it look like to read the Sermon on the Mount a couple times? And go back and look at some of these things that Jesus asked us to put into practice. And maybe you'll be like, oh, that's the one little brick that I want to put on. What if you're like, oh, Jesus isn't asking you to do like these weird spiritual things that my youth pastor just used to do, right? Maybe what you find out is that Jesus is like, let's talk about worry. And you're like, oh my God, I've been riddled with anxiety. This is incredible, right? And as you think about worry this week, you're just like, oh, I'm just going to share a list of gratitudes because honestly, life does feel overwhelming. And I can admit that. I don't have to be scared. I don't have to be ashamed of that. I'm just going to say some things I'm going to be thankful for. Maybe this week you look back in the Sermon on the Mount and you see Jesus talking about prayer. You're just like, man, I don't have, I don't have all these words, but you just say, seven, every day I'm going to pick 30-second time when I'm going to put it on my phone. I'm just going to say, hey, God, period. And maybe what that teaches you is maybe there's a bigger authority in this world. I don't know what it all means. I don't know if I have it all figured out but I need something beyond myself because I've been human long enough to know I won't make it all by myself, to be honest. I need God. Maybe you're going to read it and you're going to read something about judgment and you're going to read that passage a lot of times because you have Thanksgiving next week, so you know better. You're going to be around some people that you want to judge who are judging you and it hurts. You're going to think about taking a plank out of your own eyes so that you can see clearly to take the plank out of theirs. Speck of dust out of there is what it says. Rewarding Jesus. Maybe you're going to read it and you're going to say, oh, the golden rule. I want to treat others as I want to be treated. And you're just going to make a list of some people who piss you off. 
You're just going to say, I might, I, might, I might not do it, but I'm going to move towards something in my heart where I can just treat humanity in a different way. You're going to look at a pastor that says, love your enemies, and you're like, man, loving my enemies does not mean what they told me over there. It does not mean putting myself in unhealthy and unsafe situations. Loving my enemies is going to be the story where I'm going to learn boundaries this week. I'm going to keep, now I'm not going to keep throwing myself into the lion's den, and I'm going to forgive for me. Because they've, right, they're occupying a lot of free rent in my head, or however the quote goes. And I don't want that anymore. So my challenge to us is this week is that. Just try it out. Just try the words of Jesus on. And see if it doesn't provide for you a better foundation and a better way of life. Because here's the truth of it. Don't try these words on and try something else out. What I believe about these words is that billions of people over thousands of years have experienced them to be true. Then when we take away all of the other stuff, when we take away all of the oppression, all of the repression, all of the harm, all the things that the church has done wrong, when people live in and practice, not a set of ideals and beliefs, but they practice these words that Jesus has given us on the Sermon on the Mount, I believe that lives have just been changed and they've been better. Because how we reorient ourselves when we judge, how we think about worry or how the flowers of the field are clothed and I'm not stressed about myself all the time, it just changes who we are as human beings. So maybe just try it on this week, New Abbey. Would you commit to practicing something different? Because you're going to practice something else already. I promise you that. And maybe these ways, these words of Jesus, as you hear them in fresh ways, will create transformation and healing and new life in you this week and for the weeks to come. Would you get back in your groups? Would you answer this question with one another? What's one building block you can commit to this week? Enjoy. Thanks for listening to the New Abbey Podcast. For more information, visit us on the web at www.newabbey.org.